we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Okay, so this one uh, caught me a little by surprise to be clear with you, my fellow Americans, and uh, because uh, it impacted Americans, and it's the life expectancy of men. I happen to be one of them, by the way. Uh, in the United States is nearly six years shorter than that of women. This is a new research published uh, just this week here, uh, JAMA. And uh, so it goes on, at least partially as a consequence of over 1 million COVID-19 deaths, life expectancy in the U.S. has declined significantly over the past few years. Now listen to this, fallen from 79 years in 2019 to 77 in 2020 and 76 in 2022. Uh, undoing over two decades of progress, the study goes on to say in uh, in JAMA. So, uh, well, let's talk about that as a, I think this is a very interesting uh, study here. And welcome into America Out Loud Pulse. It is indeed Malcolm Out Loud here, along with my co-host. Dr. Peter McCullough. All right, so we're both men. We fall into this uh, concerning category here. And uh uh, so this puts our country, this puts America now far behind its wealthy peers, it goes on to say, Peter, and like countries such as Japan, Korea, Portugal, the UK, Italy, all enjoy a life expectancy north of 80 years old. Incredible. Countries such as uh, Turkey and China also fear better. We're down at the lower part of this thing. What's going on? Life expectancy is an actuarial computation. So it's a theoretical number that we could all, you know, on average, uh, theoretically hit in our lifetime to live that long. Now, obviously, there's a variety of factors in it. And because it's not a measure of what we call central tendency, it's a measure of statistically what's at the end, it's very subject to um, outliers. So let me give you an example is if you just had a few more infants die, you would actually really drop an infant who dies, contributed 50 years of statistics, 60 years. Now they contribute less than a year. So uh, life expectancy is heavily, heavily uh, influenced by infant mortality and then maternal mortality. And uh, there, for the first time, we've seen infant mortality turn up in the last year or two. And we're seeing record maternal mortality. Those are probably moving the numbers a lot more than what would be happening with senior citizens in a nursing home. So it's tricky to, to interpret that number, right. but it's heavily influenced by the outliers, people at, at young uh, um, ages dying. And it's very hard to improve life expectancy. So let's say we're at 76. If you have a bunch of people living to 78, that's not going to move the needle much, or even 80 is not going to move. You know, you'd have to have a lot of people living to 100 right. to start to turn that around. But what everybody's asking, Malcolm, is what's gone on to have things go backwards? Yeah. Uh, you know, let's, all right, before we go there, even, but listen, 
all right, I accept what you say, uh, and I totally get it about the birth rate, the young people. I mean, young, if there, if that is, as you just said, if there's an increase in Escalation, you're exactly right. These are averages. So some people, are, regardless, are going to live much longer and some are not. But but the, listen to this now a minute here, because to go further with this, it says here, the picture is especially concerning for men because life expectancy is even less now. And I did... I. I remember seeing this, but life expectancy is 73.2. That's incredible, Peter. That's nuts compared with women's 79.1. So we're talking about almost a six-year gap, uh, but the widest between those two genders. Why is that, back to your scenario moment, which I accept, but, you know, uh, young infants and children, maybe that's increased, but why does it impact more men than no, the women? No, that's, no that's, indif- that's something different. So once we get to right. male female gender issues, it's not, it can't be um, right. uh, influenced by infant death since infant death is pretty equal among girl little girls and I would little think. boys. The man and woman situation is largely dictated by rates of differential and coronary heart disease. So men actually die of heart disease, uh, heart blockages, cholesterol blockages to the heart muscle on average about ten years before women do. And that's been known for a very long time. So what causes cancer, that, please? Can you elaborate on that? Is that is that diet? What what is causing that, please? No, male gender is an accepted cardiovascular risk factor. There's something about androgens that that probably play an adverse role. Something about estrogens that may play a protective role. Okay. Um, historically, men have been more hard driving. They've been the breadwinners. They tend to be slightly more obese. Tend to have higher blood pressures. Um, you know, probably a congealing of those factors, but it's it's always true that men die before the women. You know, you know this because you go to a nursing home, Malcolm. It, it it's probably I don't know eighty percent women or I've seen it. You're women. exactly right. You're exactly right. right. It's it's yeah. always the women always yeah. outlast the the men. Do you know in some ancient cultures, mm-hmm. uh, it's very common for a um a older man to marry a younger woman. Have you ever heard this or seen this? Yes. By by, by design. And many times, uh, and I'm thinking about uh, uh, Middle Eastern cultures, Persian and others, uh, they usually want about a 10-year gap between the man and the woman for marriage. And I've asked questions. I said, you know, why is that the case? Uh, Well, some of these are, again, these are these civilizations that have been around for thousands of years, right? So they they have a lot more experience than a typical American would. And the answer is, number one, uh, a man who's older is much more likely to be financially stable and better able to support a family than a a young man, you know, know, straight, straight out of his school. That makes sense. And they said, number two, is that that older man is more likely to die sooner and so the woman needs to be younger and more able to take care of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that something else? Well, but, it is. Uh, it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, this disparity. And now they do say here, by the way, they partially blame this. And I do understand this. And I want to talk to you about this. A conse- consequence, they say, of the COVID deaths, over a million COVID deaths. Now, pause that thought there. We're talking about a disparity now that is now approached in America six years. That's incredible that we've never, I mean, I've never seen that. So how much did COVID in your estimation play into that? 
was it more male than female? Is that possible or? No, it was pretty equal. You know, that one's a tough one. Remember on the books, United States has 1.2 million COVID deaths, but everything counted. So if uh, someone, you know, uh, fell and uh, had an intracranial hemorrhage and they were COVID positive, it counted as as a COVID death. If someone was at the end of, you know, long road of cancer, but was COVID positive, it was counted as a COVID death. So our CDC fairly has said that really it was only 10% of that 1.2 million have said only 3% of their deadly COVID pneumonia. Everything else was a congealing of all these other, uh, what's called comorbidities. Now, I went to a lecture recently, Scott Atlas, former White House advisor, indicated that I think the number was roughly half of the deaths with COVID, Malcolm, were in people who had already exceeded life expectancy. So, so uh, you know, they were- The elderly, Oh, yeah, in a sense, they could have been on borrowed time or the elderly, they we were kind of beyond um, th- that uh, limit. So it, so COVID itself clearly could have played a, a role, but at that 120,000 deaths, I, you know, I think what looms out there very big, and we just have to say it, is the COVID-19 mass vaccination campaign. Uh, we have multiple estimates now that in America, the cumulative number of people who've died as a result of COVID-19 vaccination is around 600,000. I mean, it's way more than 120,000 and 600,000 would be enough to move the needle for sure. And uh, as we went over in our show last week, the life insurance uh, roles are exploding with claims that there are more and more claims of people with life insurance who've died. And who has life insurance? Those people who are younger and employed. So if we had a swell of people dying in their 30s and 40s and 50s, and let's say it was vaccine-related, myocarditis, blood clots, stroke, other catastrophes, that that could explain. So young people dying in that 20s, 30s, and 40s, that would be enough because the numbers are big enough to bring down life expectancy. So as we kind of analyze this, which I think we've done fairly, um, part could be influenced by an upturn in infant mortality, but doesn't explain gender differential. COVID itself isn't going to play much because it wasn't young people dying with COVID. That doesn't move, uh, statistically move the life expectancy down because people were beyond life expectancy. We're down to basically COVID-19 vaccination. That's my suspicion about why these numbers are going in the wrong direction. But it's kind of a spooky thing to think about. I'm age 60, Malcolm. You know, what, I have, what, I have 16 more years to live? Mm, they go by pretty quick. Right, right, they do, which you and I talked about before the mic went hot, how busy we are. And one one week seems to lead to the next week. Lead, and I don't know, many of you out there probably <laughs> feel the same way, right? I mean, life is going by so quick. I mean, I, I just can't even grab a hold of it anymore. I mean... I'm finishing one week after the next, after the next, because we're so, you know, I guess part of the parcel, the problem is we're so very busy people. I mean, really busy people. And I think that's where we lose the sense of time, you know, that the clock moves so quickly because we're on a busy schedule. And that's what I'm guessing is the case. I don't know, but it makes sense. All right. this well, Isn't um, it true, Malcolm, isn't it true that when you're young, right. very young, oh, yeah. time seems to drag? Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember being a kid? Yeah. And you're just like, oh, you know, you just couldn't wait until yeah. you were 
nine years old and school took forever. You couldn't wait for Christmas time. And you remember all this, it's just that time dragged. And as we get older and older and older, time seems to compress. And that's true. As we get older, time compresses. And you know what's something else that's interesting with age? We actually require less sleep. So uh, the, the oldest amongst us actually sleep the less. The uh, Younger people sleep way more. So an average uh, kindergartner will sleep 12 hours. And the, the average person our age is, is probably burning on six or seven. Right. Right. Yeah. Some even less, which is not healthy either. Uh, but uh, all right. This Brandon Yan is a resident physician at the UCSF School of Medicine and a research collaborator at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. So listen to what he says. He says the opioid epidemic, mental health and chronic metabolic disease are front and center in the data that we see here, explaining why there's a widening life expectancy gap by gender. Uh, so he goes there. He said a lot of these drivers of worsening life expectancy, in particular for men, are preventable causes of death. What do you say to that? It's certainly possible. You know, the numbers we hear in the opioid pandemic are very impressive. You know, over 100,000 fentanyl deaths. And uh, I had a patient today come in, a couple, and their son, age 45, uh, just died of a fentanyl overdose. Their son. And they showed me pictures of him. And it was, uh, uh, he had been in and out of uh, drug houses. He's 45 years old, got hooked on fentanyl. And you know what happened, Malcolm? He was uh, homeless, uh, on a, uh, sitting on a median, uh, I guess on a busy road in Fort Worth at three o'clock in the morning. He just kind of rolls off the median and, and cars just started running over him. Oh my God. Wow. And it was just a horrific. They showed me pictures, and he had, you know, been in hospitals uh, in the months before that, and and he looked. The, the man looked forty five, but he looked like he was ninety five and very uh, debilitated. So, uh, sure, I mean, could a wave of uh, drug abuse uh, play a role uh, for sure? And fentanyl overdoses are they more common in men than women? I don't know the data, but my hunch would tell me yes, that it is more common in men. Well, how about diabetes? and obesity, high blood pressure, they, they all play a role. It's clear. When I started practice, Malcolm, uh, 1991, as an internist, uh, we knew at that time 10% of the population was obese, 10%. Now today, it's over 50%. That's a huge secular change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it sure is. You know, um, there's another component here too. Um, they say the decline in life expectancy in, in America suggests that advancements in medical treatments are no longer sufficient to counter ongoing public health crises. They say, they say, and I quote, we have a healthcare system. Listen to this. This is accurate. That is very advanced in treating illness and advanced disease, but for the most part is not very good when it comes to preventive care. And isn't that the crux of the whole deal right there, right? Oh, for sure. I mean, the case example is cancer care. Now, 40% of people die of cancer. Do you know that so many of the cancer treatments extend life by a matter of months, like chemotherapy and radiation, and they're very expensive. 
So, uh, you know, the cancer care is tough. There are cancers that are, quote, preventable, and we screen for them. Uh, I think the area to focus on is cardiovascular disease. You know, heart attacks and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Uh, There were data from the UCLA CHAMP study years ago that showed that 90% of it's preventable, 90%. So if one kept themselves thin and fit, uh, by that, those means didn't develop diabetes, blood pressure stayed down, they didn't smoke. If they had a high cholesterol, they, they, they made dietary and medicinal interventions to lower cholesterol, managed blood pressure, you pretty much have it. I mean, that means you know, you're reducing the chances of a heart attack or cardiovascular death by 90%. It's that big. So uh, we do make a difference. Like my last patient today had a blood pressure, systolic blood pressure of 208 when my assistant checked. I let her settle down. She checked her own blood pressure, her own unit. It was 186 systolic. And then I checked it again with a, with a you know, the, the doctor's cuff in the office and it was 188. And in high blood pressure, Malcolm, we focus on the top number in older adults. We don't worry about the lower number. We focus on the top number. Well, let me tell you, at blood pressures more than 160, that person is not going to be around very long. It's just, it's a direct risk predictor for the development of heart failure and of stroke. And there's absolutely no doubt about it. So control of blood pressure for that person is is absolutely paramount for her having a healthy rest of her life. And she was 72 years old. She's thin, tends to eat a lot of salt, says she's had a lot of stress and and uh, you know other factors in life, but she needs drugs to lower blood pressure and stop eating the salt. So I can tell you there that you know that's what primary care should be doing. That's preventive medicine is intercepting something like this where it's an out of control blood pressure and getting it under control. And some people need a few medicines. It, you know that fits me. I have high blood pressure. I take a few medicines, but I'm not going to check out early due to an intracranial hemorrhage or heart failure. Because I, you know, refuse to manage a, a high blood pressure situation. I, I'm Irish. I've been over to Ireland. I've, we've tracked all the family lineages. Uh, every man in my family was dead in their 40s with high blood pressure or wow. with uh, a, a, an intracranial hemorrhage, a stroke, or with heart failure. It's pretty obvious we're not long-lived unless we take bl- medications to lower blood pressure. That's incredible. I mean, in their 40s, you say. That's incredible, man. Wow, huh? That's... Well, let's you know, let's just talk about this. 65% of adult Americans will develop high blood pressure. And, you know, that's defined as a systolic blood pressure over 130. And again, we focus on that top number and we start treating it when it's over 140. Okay. The treatment target is to get it less than 120 consistently. And we know that, uh, you know, consistently, you know, it's better to be below 120 than to be at 140 chronically. And then certainly at 160 is when we can start to see, see you know, the, the actuarial risks go up. At 180, you, you know, th- that's a time bomb. That, that person could have a stroke that night uh, because we've lost what's called cerebral autoregulation. The blood vessels in the brain are constantly trying to control blood flow and manage pressure. But when the pressure exceeds 180, those capillaries and those vessels can burst and little strokes can happen in the brain. So that's the reason why it's so important. I mean, I had to really 
change the blood pressure medicines and start to get her under control. But that's primary care cardiology makes a huge impact on hypertension. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what my uh, blood pressure was. I've got to find the paper so I can share it with you. <laughs> with the, uh... Well, you know, everyone was asking me about your physical. I wasn't going to bring it up. But uh, now that you've brought it up, Malcolm, what well, was the verdict? I know yeah. I got to find the paperwork here. But, well, I'm still having the blood work done. You know how that delays uh, the actual visit to the doctor's office, right? You know? Um, so that is, that process is still out there. Um, and I'll know that over the next couple of weeks, but I got to tell you, I hit the lottery with the doctor. This is first time I had met this uh, doctor. We had researched and selected him and really hit the lottery with him. He was just brilliant. In fact, remind me, um, you were at uh, a Bowman. Bowman, is it? Remind me. Um, I was up at Beaumont Hospital in Beaumont. Beaumont, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Right. He was there as well. He knew. He he didn't. He knew of you very much. He he went to the. He was at the same place because it came up okay. in conversation. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, but I did hit the lottery with that. I felt really, really good and and meeting him. And that's part of the uh, whole deal when you're putting your trust into a, a physician is to have somebody you know you can trust who's speaking honestly with you about it. Oh my golly, we got into a whole, you couldn't believe this room here, Peter, you would have laughed. Um, as the door, in fact, um, we he ended up texting me, we texted back and forth after I left the appointment. I gave him a hug when I left the room. <laughs> so we became old friends, like old souls here. We started talking about uh, the COVID stuff and he was so passionate about what had taken place. In fact, he, I can't share his name publicly because I won't do that. Even the facility, I can't. But he went on to, uh, you have to protect people today. And you know what I'm talking about, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Peter, with that. So, mm -hmm. but he went on to share uh, the horror stories. Um, they were uh, trying to force him to get a vaccine. Mm. And uh, back, uh, yeah, that's exactly it. And he, um, a very prestigious and a place. And he, uh, uh, he had no symptoms he had no reason to he had antibodies he had the test on he knew it was absolutely perfect there was no reason in the world to do this other than what you and i talked about all the time some crazy policy in a back room and they were forcing on him and he was so well loved there and respected and had done so many good things and they called him in for a meeting and asked him oh he put a post out he put a listen to this he put a video post out that went viral about but it went totally viral about what had been taking place with the vaccine. It's a moment of truth, Peter. You you and I have seen those moments of truth, mm -hmm. you know, right? And he put mm -hmm. his moment of truth out there, never connected it with the facility, never said anything about it. But people looked up to see who he was because it went viral. And with that said, uh, they called him into a meeting, the executives, and asked him to remove it. Remove, he said, well, I don't even talk about this here. What's got nothing to do with you folks? He, and he was never one to do this. He wasn't out on social media doing this kind of thing, but he just felt a passion with what had been taking place in the public arena to put this personal message out there, totally disconnected from anything else, or they called him on it. Ooh. And he then looked at it, looked at himself, looked at his own soul, and he couldn't do it. Either. He then he looked, he did the math real quickly in front of them. That's what I gather out of it. And he then said, I will begin to, I will give you my notice. He said, and I will begin to move on and, very respectful, humble man, very smart. But then, and they thanked him for doing that. These bastards thanked him for doing that, which really, really should infuriate all of us. This good man that's being thrown out, just like what happened to you. And, you know, 
but he just couldn't do it. He couldn't be there anymore. And he just wasn't going to work. And so he left and ended up moving to a different area. Just, you know, again, life changes things quickly. And uh, that's what happened, you know? So, right. It he happens, is, right? So he, he was a casualty of this new uh, vaccine regime, right? If it, don't take the vax, uh, you move on. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I, I really uh, enjoyed uh, meeting him and the connection. But everything thus far in the exam I had on the test was excellent. And uh, I, I could not have uh, been more pleased. And that's really uh, part of the uh, that was the beautiful thing about it. Yeah. So anyways, uh, I'll well, let, find me, the- let me just give some commentary about about what you go through on the physical exam. People say, well, what, what are the doctors really pick up uh you know a doctor can tell a lot just by you know just carefully studying someone if the if the eye movements are tracking in the right direction the pupils are reacting exactly yeah correctly uh, take a look in the ear make sure there's you know nothing starting to grow into the ear canal that you would never feel just feel along the jawline um, i always look in the mouth uh, look at the teeth ask the patient to raise their tongue up to I'm really focusing on teeth, to be honest with you, as a cardiologist, because uh, bad teeth, believe it or not, can contribute to infections of heart valves, which can be disastrous. They can infect uh, pacemakers. So as a cardiologist, I always look at the teeth. And um, uh, and then we listen to lungs, largely to pick up wheezes. I always ask patients to take a deep breath on the last one and blow it as hard as they can, try to express wheezes. And then in cardiology, it's the art of the cardiac exam, where we're largely listening for murmurs or other abnormalities. There's a common heart rhythm, Malcolm, that sneaks up on people. It's called atrial fibrillation. And that's the one reason to get an annual EKG, have a doctor look at you. I, I assume they got an EKG on you. Yes, yeah. yes. And there's a whole yeah. lot of, um, I'm just, yeah, I'm, on, I'm actually on their site right now <laughs> while you're talking. Okay, well, don't, don't spill any what's called no, 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 protected no. health information. Yeah. But the EKG nowadays, the EKG has a computer reading on it. So the computer tends to overread it. So it's now it's pretty rare to get one that just says normal EKG. There'll be a lot of things at the top, like, you know, uh, RSR prime pattern, nonspecific T wave changes, uh, you know, leftward axis and, you know, on and on. And they're just basically computer reminders to remind the doctor to just consider these things. And, uh, you know, we can cross them out or or just leave them there as kind of a, you know, as a conservative read. But um, the, the EKG, and then we move down the abdomen. I'm just feeling for liver size, uh, feeling for anything. We rarely can feel the spleen. I listen to the stethoscope right over the belly button. That's where we'd hear blood rushing through uh, an aneurysm there or a narrowed uh, aorta. And then down to the, the the legs, and we're largely looking for swelling down there. I feel the pulses right by the um, by the Achilles tendon. That's a rough guide of whether or not blood flow down to the feet is good. And then, uh, you know, back up and a quick check on uh, neurologic function, uh, reflexes. I had somebody this last week who had um, a, a problem of the spinal cord and you know, had markedly abnormal reflexes where they really bounced up when I used the reflex hammer. And uh, and then, you know, largely that's it. The physical exam is is pretty brief and it's a general overview. Uh, today, I took a careful look on someone's back, backside, young man who doesn't, you know, he lives alone, just to make sure there wasn't a, a melanoma or any tumor of, con- any skin tumor 
of concern back there. But everybody should either, you know, have their spouse look at their back about once a month because you can't see back there. Make sure you don't have any black moles growing, anything that's, you know, spinning out of control there for a concern of a skin cancer. And then, as I said, 70% of the action on your annual physical, Malcolm, is for the labs. And we don't have those back, but that's exactly it. That's exactly it, and that's I what I'm anxious to get. Uh, but uh, those results, because it is the labs, it's the blood work, what you always talk about, Peter. You know, right? And you just uh, and so that basically wraps it up. I always ask people, when did you have comprehensive labs? In general, it's good practice once a year, because because again, this idea that things sneak up on people, like slipping into renal failure, developing hepatitis C. Uh, developing problems with serum calcium, for instance, a thyroid. Remember, I mentioned this before, 8% of men, the thyroid does slowly, you know, fizzle out over time. It's 15% of women. The only way you're going to pick that up is on a blood test. So uh, we always measure what's called the TSH, the thyroid stimulating hormone on the blood test. So there is value in doing the labs. It shouldn't be terribly expensive. And, uh, and then you can move forward. The labs always screen for diabetes with the fasting blood sugar and the hemoglobin A1C. And the labs always take a look at cholesterol because cholesterol is a good general indicator of whether or not uh, you know there's gonna be accumulation of cholesterol in arteries to cause atherosclerosis. Yeah, it's, uh, you, you, you learn a lot about yourself when you do this. So I think it is important to do. Listen, let me also tell folks, because uh, there's a couple of questions that kind of relate to some of the conversation we had up front. Uh, this is uh, going to be today here, Q&A 91. Wow, 91. All right. Let me let me just throw these couple at you before we pause in the middle here. This is from Kyle. Uh, Dr. McCullough, I read an article online that stated that the vaccine has shortened the lifespan of a recipient by 25 years on average based on the data out there. What do you think about this? Now, that kind of plays a little bit to what we were talking about up front, but this is talking about the, the vaccine. I've read an article that said that the vaccine has shortened the lifespan 25 years. What You hear about that? What is that? Well, you know, if you go back to the original data you quoted, let's say life expectancy at its best in the United States, I think was 82, right? Wasn't it the best we achieved or 83? And now we're at 76. Um, 73 if, in America. No, it dropped to 73 for men, for men, 79 oh, for God, women. Oh, God, 73. Malcolm, listen, it was good to know you. It was going to shut down pretty soon. <laughs> That's God, what I'm afraid of here. <laughs> Jeez, we better start, we better get our affairs in order. Um, but uh, no, if, if we actually could stratify by who took vaccines and who didn't, right. and uh, and if we saw a differential there, you know, that could explain it if the life expectancy is really dropping off among the vaccinated. Now, we know from the COVID Community States Program that about 75% of Americans took one or more shots. Now, CDC says 92%. There's just no way. That was an overestimate. I think everybody now understands it's an overestimate. That 75% took the shots, 25% didn't. If we saw that stratification, it'd be unlikely that the vaccinated are way down in the 40s and 50s because it's just too many people and uh, it's too big of a of a gap. But if you told me that the average age of someone dying with the vaccine is in that range, I'd say yes. And the paper I quote would be by Mark Skidmore uh, in the Journal of Public Health Policy and Law, where he used a lot of social science techniques and asked the question of those dying with the vaccine, roughly how old they are on average. Skidmore paper, the average was 48 years of people wow. dying with the vaccine. 
So that is a big, uh, so there's truth to what he's asking then. Uh, it's partially supported. It's it's not it's not that the life expectancy is 48 years. I, I guess you could say this much. The life expectancy of those who die taking the vaccine is about 48 years. Yeah, that'd be a correct statement. Yeah, well, uh, his sh- and he says, uh, the report he said, shorten the lifespan of a recipient by 25 years. That could very well work out to what you just said. It's it's hard. You know, I'm not an actuary, but, uh, but maybe I should interview one on my show. Uh, these are just, they're interesting because these numbers typically don't take these dramatic shifts. That's really what we're talking about. That's the reason why our listeners, uh, you know, people are getting worried about this. These are big secular changes. Yeah, they are. All right, let me get to this other one uh, from Natalie. Uh, My husband took three COVID shots in 21. She says, I took none. Okay. But besides being sick with a cough for two months, that still sounds terrible. What would you recommend for those vaccinated? Uh, And um, let's see here. Oh, she talks about, right. uh, She said she heard you talk about getting rid of the spike protein in the body but she couldn't find it on the website. She went to the McCullough report on on the America Out Loud site. And I want to tell Natalie, you, you're you talking, I think, about the spike support, probably, which is what we've talked about prior. Uh, so if you go to the McCullough, you have to go to the shop, americaoutloud.shop to get that, but uh, to get the spike support, I think that's what she's talking about here, because we talked about getting rid of the spike protein in the body. Uh, so what would you recommend for those vaccinated? She says, uh, besides being sick with a cough for two months, so what would you, what would you recommend for those vaccinated? So it's talking about her husband and her, yeah, oh, I, her adult children as well. in their twenties took it as well. She's the only one that didn't. What can I do to save their lives? And my husband, listen to this. Oh, and she wants to know also, do you do telemedicine? Oh boy. No, no I don't do telemedicine because I'm overwhelmed with people in the office um, but people do come from all over the country and, you know, I manage a busy schedule through the day. Uh, let me say that uh, for those who have taken the vaccine and they have some symptoms of what we call post-acute sequelae after vaccination, the triple-based detoxification or the combination of natokinase, 2,000 units twice a day, bromelain, 500 milligrams a day, and curcumin, 500 milligrams twice a day, as a triple combination is a very reasonable proposal. Now, the wellness company has spike support, which has been the leading form of natokinase worldwide for a year. And they today, they just announced expanding to the trio of spike support plus bromelain and curcumin. You buy it as a trio and uh, follow the instructions on the bottle. And, and that would be the premier detoxification program uh, out there in the country right now. Uh, you can find that, certainly find it, the wellness company on the banner bar in America Out Loud uh, uh, news on our website. Right. But also, Malcolm, we have something under the COVID resources, I believe, on this, describing the protocol as well, right? Yes, we do. Yeah. So the yeah. COVID resources, uh, when you go to uh, news, there's some great, uh, some great pieces there. And that piece that Dr. McCullough is talking about uh, is, I'm um, pulling it up right now is titled um, The Clinical Rationale for SARS-CoV-2 Base Spike Protein Detoxification and Post-COVID-19 and Vaccine Injury Syndromes. That is, and Dr. McCullough's got the breakdown right in there of all three. 
now, the wellness company, we've been waiting for this report of these three coming out because people want the convenience and they want to get the right doses and they want to be clear. I mean, this is their life. This is their health. Um, all of that is at americaoutloud.shop, and that is where you will get the discount using the code OUTLOUD. You'll get 25% off uh, with our OUTLOUD family here of uh, listeners. So I'm so excited they finally have that trio. I didn't realize it was just it happened. I was waiting for the notice on it. So that's that's a beautiful thing, Peter, to hear that, you know. It's uh, a big it's a big step forward. Uh, there will be advancements bringing products into single capsules. Our clinic has done that for a private label, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which people just, you know, buying three things are going to want to get it down to a single capsule that's that's manageable. Now on curcumin, the problem with that is absorption, that you take it and it just doesn't get absorbed that much. It's dry from the, the root, the turmeric root. And uh, what wellness company decided to do is what we do in our office too, is it needs to be combined with something that aids in the absorption. The leading way to aid it in absorption is to add a minor natural ingredient called piperine. And piperine is a derivative of black pepper. And it increases the absorption of curcumin like over a thousand fold. So it's a big deal. So on curcumin, you never want to take that plain. You want to take it with an, a piperine additive. A wellness company is taking care of that for you by having the piperine additive in it. And it just works great. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, back at the um, the shop, take a look at uh, the wellness company there. Take a look at all of the products. So those are all partnered uh, sponsors there. But I also want to tell you on that left side column, by the way, if you ever want to see one of the best speeches that Dr. McCullough has ever done, it's there on the COVID resources. It just dawned on me as I was looking through the post here. And that's what I wanted to tell you. And this was the speech at the European Parliament. If you have not seen that, uh, you will want to see it. It is, uh, I think, just uh, I, probably the best I've ever seen. Um, and it, most one of the most passionate, honest, uh, frank talks that you could hear a pin drop in the room uh, for sure. So and it, it's that one's titled It is the Vaccine Until Proven Otherwise, which he stated multiple times in that speech to the European Parliament. That is under COVID resources right on the front page and is available as well. Um, there's other great things there. The Nasal Hygiene Summit we did. This is a great lineup of great, uh, the, the protocol is there. Uh, so those are COVID resources and they'll always be available for you. And that's why I have them prominent there um, because our audience wants them. Our listeners want that information. So it's all right there. All right, we'll take a quick pause right now, friends. And we'll join you just on the other side on Q&A 91 on America Out Loud Pulse. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. The Wellness Company's Chief Medical Board designed every supplement and medical protocol with your health in mind. From groundbreaking supplements like the Spike Support Formula to unique care like Freedom from Big Pharma. Join a healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interest of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be with a company that shares your values. 
Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. The Natural Colon Cleanse. It's the ultimate digestive tune-up with Oxy Powder. It's crafted to alleviate the discomfort of gas, bloating, and occasional constipation. There's a reason why Oxy Powder is our number one seller. It worked. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Okay, we join you back here on America Out Loud Pulse. It is Malcolm Out Loud here along with Dr. Peter McCullough. I want to jump, jump right into questions right now to get a bunch in here. This one's from Marty. My brother was injured by the shot two years ago. He got the two primary shots by Pfizer. Last year, he went from 260 pounds to 200 pounds quickly and denied that he was sick. Now he says that weight loss was not intentional. Recently, he has had balance problems and headaches along with nausea. He's only 48. I have him on your detox protocol and the three natural supplements. And I'm wondering if NAC uh, can safely be added. Yes, NAC can be safely added. Unintentional weight loss, large unintentional weight loss. Always think about chronic inflammatory diseases and think about neoplasms. That means cancer. There's a couple of warning signs for you, Marty, to uh, to check into and answer your question there. This next one's from C- uh, Cecilia. I am worried sick about my boy whose wife works in a hospital, and he is still not understanding this sick agenda. <clears throat> so he will continue to take the jab to protect himself from diseases his wife may bring home. What could I send him to protect him from these further jabs and I, 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 I don't know what that your answer to that is, but I got to finish. The, listen to the sentence here. You're going to love this. She then says, "Please stay vigilant, Doc. These deranged, evil psychopaths will stop at nothing to silence you." <laughs> I just love that <laughs> line. I, I had to get that out from Cecilia. Any okay. thoughts? <laughs> okay, I'll watch out for the deranged psychopaths. Um, I think the best thing to share is the World Council for Health 
pharmacovigilance report. Uh, go to World uh, World Council for Health. It's a pink and, and yellow uh, themed website. That gives very extensive review of the data all over the world showing that the vaccines are not safe for use. And if you want something more you know, local, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, March 23rd, 2023, has a statement about guiding the vaccines, you know, concluding that they're not effective and they're not safe and they should be removed from the market. So in, instead of taking your opinion or my opinion, I, I think these two evidence-based consensus-driven organizations you know, provide enough of a counter viewpoint that if someone said, listen, one group says to take the vaccines like the CDC or FDA or the AMA or the American College of Physicians, you could say, well, here's some groups that disagree. These groups say that the vaccines aren't safe. You know, it's fine to have disagreement. When there's disagreement, there should be discussion. Yeah. And that's still not what we're seeing. We're not still not seeing any discussion. And, and that's what they stopped throughout the COVID era. That became the whole joke of science. There was no discussion anymore. It got all stopped. It, it, it will never understand all that. It was corrupt as anything could be. Uh, this next one's from Terry. You recently were in an interview and mentioned a potential link of vaccines and autism and other potential conditions as we heavily vaccinate our children with a schedule of 72 vaccines. Now, now follow me on this. This is interesting. I'm trying to help my daughter see this, but don't know where there is support in studies or documentation. I have twin grandsons who are two and a half and a new granddaughter on the way. My son's 35 with ASD level one, born about the time we saw an increase in childhood vaccinations. Are there still safe vaccines or needed vaccines? Where do we find trusted information on this? No answers why we have so many cause, cases of autism. Hmm. Autism is skyrocketing, Malcolm. When you and I were kids, it was one in 10,000. Today, it's one in 36. California's got some schools now that have autism tracks at schools. Like, What's know, causing that change? That what you just said is stunning, it, those it's numbers. Astounding. It's astonishing. It, it, it is a childhood tsunami of autism. Oh, sure, there's more recognition and there's greater screening and detection, but that still doesn't explain this this meteoric rise. About 200 papers in the peer-reviewed literature suggest that autism is due to immune dysregulation. Something perturbs the immune system. These various inflammatory factors go up into the brain. They cause a change in the brain and the child is forever changed. We Almost all the autism starts before the age of four. So it's something happening between the ages of zero and four. And it's a pretty short list. I mean, what is it? Is it in the water supply? Is it in the air? Or could it be these vaccines, which have accelerated from when you and I were kids, I think there were five shots, to now with COVID, we're actually at over 108 shots. Wow. So uh, this, this hyper-vaccination, it does appear to be the smoking gun. The best thing for the listener to grab is World Council for Health, September 5th, 2023, statement on this. Uh, declaring that now since COVID vaccines have been added to the schedule, that we should just put a pause on the schedule. The, 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 it's safer to wait now than to plunge in with all these vaccines, you know, have a child, have a complication. It's not worth it. A very detailed examination of this in the evidence is in a book called Turtles All the Way Down. 
that book is is authored, unfortunately, by anonymous scientists who are too fearful for their lives to mm. uh, have their names uh, out there. Um, but you know, I can tell you, I've said publicly, if I was a young family today and I was looking at this, uh, I would decline all the vaccines. Uh, many of them are just not needed at those times. I mean, just starting from birth, every child's given a hepatitis B vaccine at birth. It's only needed in a mother who has hepatitis B who is actively IV drug abusing to try to prevent the transmission to the baby. You know, every child in America getting a hepatitis B shot at birth when it's really only needed for a tiny number of drug addict mothers is ridiculous. These other children don't have any risks of hepatitis B. Now, when they get to be the age of being a nurse or a doctor, going to work with blood and guts, then yeah, hepatitis B vaccine should be considered. And we can go through each one of these right now. We don't have a massive threat of pertussis or diphtheria because we have better living conditions, better air quality. We don't have heavy threats of uh, of measles or polio. We've got a much cleaner uh, water supply. And we can go on and on and on. Uh, nothing on the childhood vaccine schedule is a massive risk right now to childhood. And everything has consequences. I mean, one of the examples is the chickenpox vaccine. While chickenpox is an inconvenience as a kid, uh, and the vaccine has reduced rates of chickenpox, but now the vaccine in multiple studies, Malcolm, is clearly associated with more cases of adult shingles. Wow. So there's no free lunch here. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. You've been steadfast on this point for the last couple of years, being very careful about this vaccine industry. And as far as I can see, it seems to me it's healthcare gone amok. They're being too aggressively and overstimulating these vaccines to these young little babies and what have you. And you have to ask yourself, why? I mean, why? It really is healthcare gone amok. And uh, I would say step off the gas. I mean, you've been very clear on that over the last couple of years. And I think you perfectly put out the scenario right then. I hope everybody gets a lot out of that. Replace that back and listens to what Dr. McCullough just said. I think it's perfect advice, uh, suggestions for you to consider. You always have to make your own decision here, though, friends. Let's be clear. We're never given medical advice specifically. You have to decide for yourself. That's why I always tell you when you go to the shop, always look at the research, always look at the studies, do your due diligence, do your due diligence, do not rely on somebody else telling you X, Y, or Z. It is nobody can, nobody can decide except you. And so that's important to state that as well. Uh, okay. This next one is from Suzanne in Colorado. She calls herself. All right, Suzanne in Colorado. Uh, I thank you for everything you do to educate the public on the COVID mess. Perfectly said, Suzanne. All right. I've learned so much from listening to your show. I heard the Q&A where you talked about the natokinase and how it is not known to cross the blood brain barrier. If that is the case, how does it work to treat brain fog in long COVID patients? What is the suspected mechanism of action? She asked. Huh. That is a terrific question. We're still trying to work through this. We we don't think natokinase crosses the blood brain barrier. However, there's there are you know no good studies to suggest that curcumin should, bromelain may cross the blood brain barrier. Um, you know it may be 
that it's systemic spike protein that continues to circulate. A paper by Brogna and colleagues showed that the blood spike protein keeps circulating. It may be just reducing the circulating spike protein that uh, in a sense takes the, the, the foot off the gas and allows the body to, to heal itself. Uh, but it is a mystery why some of the nervous system side effects do improve with, um, with natokinase. Now, there's another enzyme. It's called sereptase. And in a paper by Senef and colleagues in the Journal of American Physician and Surgeons, uh, Senef, and I'm an author on that paper, indicates that maybe sereptase may be uh, the, the, the enzyme of choice, if you will, for central nervous system abnormalities because it, it is thought to penetrate the blood-brain barrier. And in that paper, we're actually focused on accelerated Alzheimer's and other conditions. So a lot more to learn on that. I, I'm not ready to change or make a recommendation until we can learn more. Clearly, the peripheral nervous system abnormalities are getting better. Small fiber neuropathy, numbness and tingling, uh, ears ringing, uh, all of those seem to get better. Uh, and, and so we're just going to have to follow as things emerge. All right, this one's from Antonio. Uh, Dr. McCullough had mentioned that boys who had myocarditis had myocarditis because they didn't have the antibodies to the spike protein. Is it possible that we could see myocarditis or heart damage spring up a few years later if the antibodies stop neutralizing the spike? Boy, another great question. I think the answer is yes, if there's continued shots. So if there's more and more shots and they continue to be off target and the antibodies that are raised are misdirected uh, in such a way that uh, th that simply the library of antibodies is not neutralizing the spike protein that's generated, that in fact, we, could, we can see this. It is interesting to note, Malcolm, that with a natural infection, the antibodies fall off pretty quickly. But with the vaccine, these antibody levels are hanging up through the roof for years afterwards implying that the body is still making the spike protein. Hmm. Wow. All right. Okay. This one's from Audrey. Uh, Dr. McCullough mentions PET scans on the heart being abnormal for pretty much everyone vaccinated. Does the good doctor have access to PET scanners? And if he does, could you not confirm any recovery, say, post-vaccination? Hmm. I do have access to cardiac PET, but I just haven't had the indication to check my hunch is they return to normal. I just would, wouldn't know when that would happen. And, and at what point in time do we just exhaust everything and the body return to normal? Or maybe they start the McCullough protocol based spike protein detoxification. And maybe it's the detox that begins to lessen the burden of the spike protein. And as that occurs, the, the heart's metabolism reverts to normal. I have a feeling it's related to the spike protein. We need to spend a lot more time studying it so we can know best how to handle it. Okay, this one is from Aaron. Uh, Dr. McCullough, the vaccine impairs T-cell response to cancer. Is this permanent or temporary? I've seen some people haven't, uh, I've seen some people haven't cancer after one shot. And I know of some who've had five, but don't have cancer. Will everyone get cancer? And should we all be worried or should only the 5% bad batched people be worried? <laughs> My hunch is it's temporary. I think the greatest worry is gonna be among those in the bad batch, because I think it is a proxy for the, the aggregation of lipid nanoparticles and messenger RNA. 
And I think the worry duration, Malcolm, is going to be about five years, which is the typical cancer, you know, yeah. penumbra of time that we have to, from time zero, how far do we have to look out? The answer is typically five years. I, you know, I'm a, reluctant to tell everybody that they have to look over their shoulders now for cancer uh, for five years. But boy, do we need research right. on risk stratification to figure out who is at risk for cancer. This Biden administration blew a billion dollars on long COVID. We have no strategies. They never considered the vaccine would be our major problem. They looked at COVID and it was a complete waste of money. Nothing came out of it. And it's been so disappointing because listen to the great questions from our listeners. They have great questions that deserve answers. All the answers would come from, you know, funded research from, you know, to independent investigators to ask the questions. Right. I mean, we, we have talked before. There has been a big uptick of what they're calling now turbo cancers, right? That's true. Every cancer is on the way up right now. We believe the mechanisms include the spike protein inhibiting tumor surveillance systems, the messenger RNA interfering with DNA repair. And then lastly, this process-related impurities with a DNA SV40 promoter enhancer and origin of insertion complex. We believe that all of those are, in a sense, converging on a multi-hit hypothesis that either causing new cancers to form or existing cancers to accelerate but outside the paper by Carrie Gocklis and colleagues, of which I'm an author, we only have one bona fide case where we can prove it that the vaccine caused the cancer. And the, the challenge is going to be in all these other people suffering from cancer. How do we really prove that the vaccine played a role or not? Okay. All right. I'm going to sneak one last one in here from Jill. Dr. McCullough, the SV40 and the vials of the vaccine are dangerous, as we all know. Is virtually every person who took the vaccine now at risk of something from the SV40? More would it depend on how much the body takes in? Is it possible for the body to resist the dangers and remove them? I think it's all about quantity. The quantity in all the studies is varies greatly. Some people got little to none. Some people got more. Uh, the human body does have a way of disposing of SV40. They're called... Uh, DNA ACEs. And so I'm hopeful that it's only in a small number of people that having these process-related DNA impurities would make a difference uh, because we know that at least it's a DNA plasmid. Uh, It's used in other technologies. The body can handle this. So I'm I'm a lot more hopeful on this. I'm much more worried about the fully pseudo-urogenated synthetic messenger RNA. We haven't had a single study showing that stuff gets out of the body. And 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 so many people took it, Malcolm. And now we have so many questions. Uh, we do. We do. And uh, you can send those questions in right at America Out Loud Pulse. Go to the main site, AmericaOutloud.news. Under shows, go to Pulse. Uh, you'll go right into uh, the Pulse page. And there's a drop down. You can send them to any of the doctors, by the way, uh, any, any of the show hosts uh, for Pulse right there. Uh, and they'll commit, and, and you can send them to us right here uh, for the Wednesday broadcast. Um, that's a wrap here, my, my fellow Americans and all of our beautiful people around the world wishing you just great health, number one, great health, and a jump in your step. Have a terrific week, and thank you for joining us on America Out Loud Pulse. Always a beat ahead.